My name is Jason Porter, and I'm here to introduce the first conversation in the Violence Takes Place series of Noria, Mexico, and Central America. We're having a series of conversations on gender, geography, and violence against women in Mexico and Central America. And we're pleased to have for our first speaker, Nina Lacani, the author of Who Killed Berta Carceres, Dams, Death Squads, and Indigenous and, and an Indigenous Defenders Battle for the Planet, published this year. She's also a veteran journalist in Mexico and Central America, and the current and first environmental justice correspondent at The Guardian. How are you doing today, Nina? How are things in New York? I'm fine. Veteran makes me sound very old, which I guess I am now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, New York's good. The weather is turning, but it's good. Beautiful, beautiful. Veteran only in the sense that you have, <laughs> only in the sense that you have written on viol- on gender based violence in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, and I'm um, excited to get started with um, because the series started in the state of Guerrero in Mexico. Um, your experience there. Um, yeah, so um, I've done quite a bit of reporting from different rural communities in Guerrero and I guess just focusing on the themes of these conversations, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I think um, about the, the consequences of um, or the impact of violence and um, whether, organized, whether that be organised crime, state-sponsored violence structural violence on health and in women's health in particular um which is not really something that I think that we think a lot about you know when we think about um the impact of violence and um war um and yeah so I um a couple of years ago now um accompanied um Doctors Without Borders um who run a number of mobile health clinics in some of the most you know um conflictive parts of um of Guerrero where um you know I guess turf wars between organized crime groups and the the complicity of the state forces or the lack of willingness or ability of state forces to 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 keep you know the people to keep their population safe um has really had a you know a drastic impact on um uh, on people and women's um, in particular sort of access to health care because um, doctors and nurses are too frightened, you know, to travel to what are often isolated mountainous communities um, and, and stay in those communities because of, you know, gun battles and, um, you know, these turf wars um, and, you know, which can be, we can break out really quite quickly um, and unexpectedly. unexpectedly. Um, and these sort of invisible borders that these sort of turf wars create, you know, as well as stopping the sort of movement of people, um, also stop the movement of things like ambulances and the movement of medications and, you know, other equipment that's that's needed. So in many of these communities, um, the, you know, health, health clinics are either shut or reduced, you know, have a very reduced service and may only operate um, with a nurse or a part-time nurse and doctor and some, some, some just don't have any at all. Um, and, and so medical, um, well, Doctors Without Borders have been for the last few years 
running these mobile clinics. Um, and um, a couple of years ago, I went with uh, Monica Gonzalez, who's a brilliant uh, Mexican um, photographer. And we spent a few days um, with them. And, um, you know, what it's, you know, you had, you we were in one community where they'd been going for, you know, for a few, two or three months. No, it was their first, sorry, it was their first visit. They'd done some sort of, um, uh, you know, they'd done some sort of, um, early work sort of preparing to go and so forth so forth and the clinic was going to open at 8 a.m and by 6 a.m you know there was a queue of men women children um, waiting to see you know the doctors a psychologist um, and I think we'll talk a little bit about mental health as well and I just think specifically to women you know when when you're unable to get out of your community easily because of um, um, financial, economic reasons, but also because of these invisible borders, which make it dangerous and also just make it much more expensive to leave and come back because public transport often stops. So you're reliant on sort of taxis or collective taxis whose prices go up to get you to the nearest town or, or city. That has a huge impact on things like um, reproductive rights, on, you know, on access to contraceptives, on... Um, antenatal care, um, you know, childbirth, during childbirth, you know, and, and postpartum care as well, you know, and, 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 and very much so for, you know, um, care of, um, you know, newborns and children as well. And that burden obviously almost always falls on, um, on, on women, on mothers, on sisters, on grandmothers. Um, and so what, you know, a lot of the work that Doctors Without Borders um, do, while you might think, because you know, because of their history and um, that they'll be going in, you know, attending to gunshot wounds and other sort of horrific, you know, um, sort of injuries of war, it's the very sort of important and mundane sort of work of antenatal care and, you know, vaccinations um, and, you know, dealing with chronic long-term health problems that require um, sort of ongoing monitoring, things like hypertension and diabetes and heart disease, you know. Um, one of the other communities that um, we went to on that trip was a really, you know, a community where it was unclear, you know, what had happened, whether the sort of the, the, the farmers had voluntarily or forcibly become involved in poppy, you know, in sort of cultivating poppy for opium or, uh, um, or you know, whether there was a sort of a battle between the different caciques. It was unclear and, you know, the doctors, doctors without borders don't ask, you know. Um, but in that community, local health providers had not been able to go for four years. So they had not vaccinated a child for four years. They had not gone to provide any type of antenatal or postnatal care for four years. They had no idea how many children had been born. You know, they had no idea of any, you know, really no reliable stats, at least in, in terms of sort of any, you know, complications, even serious complications of things like childbirth, if, if, the, if women hadn't managed to get to the town, you know, to a hospital. So, you know, I think, you know, these are really sort of these invisible borders created by um, organised crime, created by, um, you know, sort of, turf wars in which security forces and governments are either complicit um, or unable or unwilling to sort of, um, you know, really keep population safe, really sort of has a um, huge impact on the on access to healthcare, And that, you know, that absolutely disproportionately affects women and children.
Wow. That's, uh, that's quite the um, experience on the ground um, with Doctors Without Borders, getting to regions that uh, hadn't received proper health care for four years. That's incredible. It, it makes it, it seems that a lot of the issues have to do with, you know, access and um, the lack of mobility tied to um, these different invisible borders that you're referring to. I, I want to ask, it, uh, also, it seems that once they get into local hospitals, you, you've written on once women get into local hospitals, while obstetric violence is also um, something that takes place um, within local hospitals, makes me wonder the relationship or what you've seen there, the relationship between doctors without borders and those. I mean, I want to get to, you know, the the gem of the book, the book. Um, uh, the, the conversation, but if you would like to follow up. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got one thing just to say is, you know, um, violence, organised crime, like extractive industry projects, like, you know, these mega sort of uh, mega environmentally destructive projects, all of these things, I guess, expose and exacerbate existing gaps and structural issues you know so in the case that we were just talking about already in those sort of mountainous areas health service health services were incomplete you know because of poor roads because the pay is so bad you know um because of lack of training there are many structural problems that already existed and then you add these complicated layers of security and violence on top of that right um obstetric violence is something that's really i mean very very sort of interesting and pervasive it's actually a legal term you know that was coined in latin america and to describe um degrading and neglect and negligent and cruel treatment of women during pregnancy during childbirth birth and, and in the postpartum period and you know this can happen anywhere and there are no reliable sort of figures on any from anywhere in the world about you know how many cases um exactly where it happens but we do know and this is internationally speaking that um, poor women and specifically women in rural areas and women of color um, and you know indigenous women I think uh, uh, you know even more so are far more likely to experience this abusive treatment you know and that can range from things like being slapped or hit in a in in a in a um, in in a hospital because you're crying out in pain, um, to not having your symptoms taken being taken seriously, in you know in in some of the cases that I reported, I've ended up with the death of the woman and the and and the unborn child, um, as well as you know women being left with serious complications, including being less sterile, um, and um or you know. Again, um, symptoms and, and symptom signs and symptoms not being taken seriously, um, so that um, there is, you know, trauma during the birthing process, and the child either ends up, either, you know, can even end up dying or ends up, you know. But for example, one of the women that I interviewed, her little boy had been starved of oxygen for hours, um, despite her being visibly in distress. She was changing colour. She was having difficulty breathing. And her baby was born, you know, severely, severely brain damaged and, you know, will need full time care for the rest of his life. 
Um, now, while these might sound like quite extreme cases, you know, they're actually terrifyingly common. Um, and they are, you know, I think in rural hospital in rural areas where again services are already more limited, um, are far more common. And um, and you know, for women. Um, if we're talking about Mexico, just for example, or Guatemala, for those who do not, who, who for whom Spanish is either not their first language or they don't speak Spanish at all, they're much more likely to experience this sort of negligent and cruel treatment. Um, I, I heard of sort of cases again in Guerrero, but I've you know I've also you know I'm aware of this happening in Oaxaca and um, in parts of in Guatemala, you know where women who would come in traveling down, you know, down from the mountains, from communities where they didn't have running water, you know, they would be mocked and sort of like told off for, for their poor personal hygiene and like they would be refused care until they found somewhere to go and bathe, you know, just really cruel and uncaring sort of treatment. And if you just think that that whole process, you're incredibly vulnerable anyway, right? Imagine you don't speak the language of the doctors and nurses and then you are being denied basic sort of care um, because, um, yeah, because of, um, because of you know, um, your, the language that you speak or the language that you don't speak. So, um, yeah, I do think, um, and that is violence, you know, it's structural violence and it's structural violence that goes on um, all around the world. You know, I think Serena Williams talked about her experiences in hospital when, you know, you know probably really one of the best known um, richest women of colour um, in the world, right? Um, and she almost experienced, um, um, you know, really quite catastrophic sort of um, outcome during childbirth because her, because healthcare providers at first didn't believe her symptoms. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a powerful example to bring it back to to audiences less familiar with um, what happens in many of these rural areas. It, it seems in a lot of your work that the, the issues of trust and transparency come up and especially around in legal issues of, you know, who, what evidence constitutes what or, you know, or what stands for truth or who is listened to in the case of indigenous um, uh, people, especially indigenous women. Um, that's, that's, that's super powerful. I, I think it's a great way to transition to, your newest book that highlights not only an environmental form of structural violence, but also a gendered one as well, as you, as you mentioned numerous times in your book. But really quickly before we jump in, I have to slow down because I was so excited to jump into this conversation with you. Um, I forgot to, to some extent, mention why it's so important, you know, especially, I mean, I, I, to highlight my position as a cis man, um, to, to highlight um, particularly gendered-based violence. So the, the Violence Takes Place series is um, invested on highlighting geography and local politics and gender issues. But in our first few issues that we have coming out, um, we had nothing particularly on gender-based violence. And we study countries, I mean, Mexico, 11, uh, I mean, you've written on this, 11 women a day are murdered. I mean, current. You know, we last month we experienced, or earlier this month we experienced um, feminist um, activists taking and occupying the human rights building. And and I just wanted we as a group wanted to prepare for a particular set of conversations. You know, during um, the month of November, um, and, and 
and the activism against gender-based violence. So I, 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 you know, once I got you on, once you got, got you on, Nina, I got really excited <laughs> to get into the conversation. That's all right. <laughs> no, it's great that you're doing that because I think gender um, is often an afterthought if it's a thought at all. And you can't have conversations about violence in the same way that you can't or shouldn't have conversations about economics or health or politics um, without thinking about the gendered um, parts of that conversation, you know, it's sort of otherwise you're never going to get the full picture, whatever you're dealing with, you know, um, because it, 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 whether, whether you're thinking about cause or of impact or, you know, um, solutions and activism, it doesn't matter if you don't, if you're only thinking about it through a male perspective and often, you know, um, unfortunately it's often a white male expe- um, perspective, you will not. You will never get the whole story, and that doesn't matter if you're talking about gangs or, uh, you know, cartels or um, political parties. Um, it's 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 hugely important. So it's great that you're doing it. Thank you, thank you. No, and it's a it's an honor to have you here to to start the conversation. So jumping into your book, which does the complete opposite of center white cis male perspectives in conversations about environment and environmental change and environmental problems. Um, why don't you introduce us to your, to uh, our, our, the main character of your book and the main settings. We'll start with geography and then we'll move back into the, the entangled uh, gender geogra- geographic violence that, uh, that this, um, that Berta fights against. Sure. Um, so Berta Cáceres um, was a, um, a Honduran woman who identified as Lenka. Um, the Lenkas are one of um, the indigenous um, native peoples of Honduras. Um, she would have. She was from um, born in La Esperanza, which is on the west, um, the west side of um, Honduras, not that far from the El Salvador border. Um, she was brought up Catholic. Um, her mom, her mother is a, um, was a staunch, by her mother. Her father was um, pretty much not present, um, and um, yeah, was brought up Catholic. But you know, really, um, you, you know, identified from you know, I think quite a sort of young age as uh, as Lenka um, as well, um, and you know that her, her her. I mean, I guess where she was born and when she was born are key to understanding who she became, you know, um, and to understand, you know, I mean, in order to understand, um, yeah, her, her, her life story, you've got to understand sort of the time and place. Um, and so, you know, she was born in 1971, really when um, sort of the um, Cold War rhetoric was sort of digging in, anti-communism sort of, um, 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 yeah, um, I guess rhetoric was, was was sort of being rolled out, you know. There'd already been a US-backed coup in in, in Guatemala. Um, there were social uprisings in Nicaragua, in in El Salvador, um, and in Honduras. You know, they were starting to see um, as well resistance and sort of um, um, and rea- um, activism. You know, was was building up, and you know, some of her siblings were part of that. Her mother was very, her mother side of the family had always been very sort of socially progressive people who had fought for social justice in a country which had really sort of just been governed by a series of sort of military dictators. Um, and so she grew up in this sort of tiny corner of Honduras. Um, her mum was a nurse and a midwife, and she would accompany her um, to 
you know, on foot or by donkey, you know, to these far-flung sort of rural cantons where, um, um, you know, where her mum, you know, and helped her mum attend um, mostly Indigenous rural women who had been completely and utterly abandoned by the state, you know. These are these were places without roads, without electricity, without running water, without healthcare, without education, um, and to help them give birth safely. And, I, they, you know, those were really formative experiences for her and her mum, you know, when it came to sort of, um, and that injustice and the sort of battle and the struggle for equality gender equality, but um, especially in the end for Indigenous people's rights was really ingrained on her from a very young age. Um, as she got, when she was a little bit older um, and the El Salvador War, sort of um, civil war, was kicked off at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, um, you know, and refugee camps opened just over on the border in, uh, in Honduras. And she with her mum would go, go with her mum to really, to you know, to again, attend to women and to attend to people who were sick. But they were also, they had this sort of double agent role. They were also bringing out written messages from guerrillas and from others to um, sort of important guerrilla fighters who would seek refuge in their family home. So, you know, their family home became really a hot spot of, of sort of, you know, social socialism sort of with a small S, you know, sort of activity. They would have, they would host sort of fighters from from neighboring countries who needed to rest or who were sort of escaping capture or whatever. And so she just from a very young age was absorbing all of this as a sponge. You know, she was seeing, you know, global politics, global economics, um, sort of the, um, you know, the neoliberal sort of wagon being sort of unfolded and how that played out in her little corner of the world, you know. And I think that's just really important because she, one of the things that, made her stand out um, from for most other people was her ability to always understand and explain local struggles in a regional and global context you know and that by that I mean sort of geopolitical context economic military social you know so that you know a, a sort of um, a struggle for fishing rights in Canada for example she would be able to understand and explain and analyze that in the context of um in a much greater context of sort of you know the politics and that um sort of the economic sort of pushes and levers being wielded by it from in Canada but also from you know whether it be the World Bank or other sort of institution you know other economic institutions so that was something that really I think those seeds were planted at a very young age um as were sort of this you know, really unshakable belief in justice and equality, um, in, um, and and how how she saw that evolved over the years. I guess as she grew and as she learned, you know, um, had um, she was, um, yeah. She, I mean, she. I'm probably I'm probably jumping back and forth here, but you know, as a teenager, she as you know, 18, 19, she actually participated in the El Salvador and sort of a civil war effort. Um, as, at the same time that she was becoming a mother for the first time. Um, and that again was a huge influence to her and her partner, the father of her children, Salvador Zuniga, um, when they formed their own organization, um, Copin. Um, because what they learned was in El Salvador, but also all around them was that 
you know, no matter how many guns and tanks and aircraft the US sent to arm these sort of right-wing dictatorships to fight against social groups and to fight against sort of, you know, um, civilian groups that had armed themselves to, you know, um, um, to, to fight for equality, to fight for justice, not a single one of those battles was won on the battlefield. You know, they were all had negotiated peace um, deals in the end, I'm sure driven by economic interests um, um, rather than um, anything else. But, you know, they were very committed to an unarmed struggle. Um, and that's what, you know, that was sort of the starting of her, you know, really the beginning of her journey as um, Bertha Cáceres, you know, the defender, um, the environmentalist, the sort of um, um, an activist that, um, you know, in, in the person who she became um, and was when she was killed in 2016. That's uh, that's such a powerful way to describe a, a truly um, amazing person. Uh, her, her ability to 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 um, to explain um, these scales from the local to the global. Um, through different parts of Central America and different spaces with different ecologies is truly tremendous. Um, and it's a, it's a, and the way you write about it in your book is, is, is equally tremendous. Um, it, it, this transition you, you, you refer to, she grows up in the Cold War period. Um, she has a guerrilla moment. She sees the, the, the difficulties of, of the fighting with, fighting with guns, right? And she moves, well, I think it's so captivating because the way you described it reminds me of how the the writer of the Small Wars Manual in the U.S. a long, long time ago, you know, the, the doctrine of counterinsurgency yeah. said, he said in 1922, no matter where, you know, technology takes us, the man on foot needs to track the man on foot. And she knew that she knew those areas knew than anybody else. And that's just really powerful how you described that. But it, it so this transition into the defender, this 20 years that, you know, without guns, if you will, um, can you, can you, can you, can, can you give the, the, the listener, um, some, some understanding of some of the local battles that she faced? Because I think one of the most amazing things that you do, much like how she described battles are, are scale up and down between endogenous and exogenous impacts on, on, on territories. And as, you know, a student studying these things, I, you know, I, I, I would love for you to chime in on how you, how you balance, you know, the, the neoliberal global, you know, exogenous impacts with the local, you know, um, you know, um, um, often, you know, just as, as equally shady, um, endogenous impacts, um, as she shifts into this, this, this defender of, uh, Rio Blanco. Sure. I mean, I mean, you know, um, I know we should we sort of generally try to avoid sweeping generalizations, but I think there yeah. is one that is um, that sort of pretty much holds true is that if you look at the last five hundred plus years from the you know from the moment that European armed settlers arrived on to the Americas, you know every battle, every conflict at its heart is about land and natural resources. You know, um, I really, I, I, I really think that's right. You know, and I think um, whether you're talking about, um, you know, cartels today, you know, or whether you're talking about um, the um, fishing rights or rivers, um, you know, for uh, sanctioned for hydroelectric power or mining 
or, um, you know, cash crops for biofuels over subsistence farming. Um, and whether you're talking about 500 years ago or now, you know, whereas some of the actors may be different and are different, you know, um, really it's always been in, about land and it's always been about natural resources, you know, and Latin America has bountiful, has had bountiful natural resources that has made it, you know, has made the, um, made it very attractive for um, people to exploit, you know, for those who want to exploit for money um, and, you know, and, you know, opposed to those, the native communities or the native people of, you know, of the, of the Americas who for centuries lived in harmony with the land and the planet and with natural resources you know it wasn't never about exploitation it was about sustainable coexistence that at heart I think is what pits you know is a sort of root cause of you know it most if not all of the conflicts you know um that we we see up to today and and Berta knew that Berta understood Berta understood that right and so you know um it, the the, the 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 civil war in guerrilla was about control of course it was about political power um, but at its heart it was about economic power and the economic power was about who controlled the land right? um and in honduras it was the same right and so when they came back from el salvador what they knew they wanted to do was organize you have a popular organization a grassroots organization fighting for it was always about fighting for something you know um for indigenous rights right um and by the time they started they were started to understand the connection between um indigenous rights and land rights you cannot separate those things right you cannot separate indigenous spirituality from land and from water um and 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 so that's what they you know they were thinking about that they were organizing around that and then on the, you know the 1st of January 1994 the Zapatista uprising unfolds okay and that was a light bulb moment I think um, for Berta and for Salvador because they realizing that that you know this was the moment right this was a moment to organize around indigenous rights they were absolutely sure they want they, theirs would be an unarmed movement, like we said. But it, that's really was a sort of driving factor, you know, a driving sort of force. Seeing that unfold in southern Mexico, and that you know, and so that that's what they did, and they started taking on local landowners, the local landowners who were who had stolen um, land, ter- um, ancestral land from from Lenca communities. And were logging, were 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 sort of um, were involved in illegal logging, ranching, um, coffee, you know, all of these sort of you know um, sort of cash crop sort of activities, and they started um, um, organizing and protesting. They would do roadblocks, they would do protests, they would sort of you know um, civil dis- disobedience really, and but and they were successful. They were you know they were incredibly successful, and so right from the beginning, um their organization and their sort of um their their mobilizations you know would generate really you know big reactions you know because when you're doing when your civil disobedience is effective and you are um fundamentally upsetting the status quo and disrupting the status quo rather than maintaining it 
you were going to get a reaction, right? So there was a reaction from security forces. I mean, some of these landowners were secure, part might members of the security forces too, or were local politicians, or at least had, um, you know, operated with their help. They would get threats. I mean, their kids remember sort of getting, you know, death threats, their mum and dad getting death threats right from the beginning in those days. But they were effective and they started organising, they started, um, and, and, and then, you know, they really the sort of I guess that that um evolved into what is you know a, was a genius sort of move on their part um the, to 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 do these pilgrim marches um from La Esperanza so from this sort of Lenca sort of territory to the capital Tegucigalpa which is about 200 kilometers on foot and they were joined on this march this sort of you know pilgrim march by all the other indigenous groups from around the country, you know, the Tulipanis, the Maya Shorty, the Afro-Garifuna people from the coast were there with their drums and their smoke and their, you know, and their songs. And everybody marched together. And I can't under, you know, I can't overstate the importance of this because whereas everybody in the world knew that there were indigenous people in Mexico and there were indigenous people in Guatemala and Peru and Brazil, in Honduras, there was just this wide-held belief that they were—they had been—they were—they were gone. They were like a relic of the past, and this was a moment of saying, "We are here. We are—you know—we are present, and we are not going away. We are going to demand our rights." At the forefront of that were some very strong women: Berta Cáceres, Miriam Miranda, leader of the Garifuna people. Pascualita, she's a, um, you know, I, I, um, I should know her surname, but I just call her Pascualita. You know, she was a Lenka, she's a Lenka legend, really. You know, she's in her 60s now, but she was, you know, like an elder that was uh, very influential on Bertha and Copin in terms of helping to recuperate and revive Lenka culture and traditions, which had really been lost, um, partially lost and partially were being carried out in secret because of, you know, the repression that these communities had faced um, from the sort of Spanish settlers um, for so many centuries. And that really, that opened the door, you know, for, oh, it didn't open the door. I mean, they demanded it, they pushed for it, for recognition in the constitution, for, you know, um, Honduras signed the ILO, the, um, the, um, the I've forgotten what it's called now. It's, a, you know, the, um, the, the UN sort of labour um, organisation um, treaty, which gives Indigenous people internationally recognised rights to a say, to auto-determination, self-determination on what happens on their territories, which is incredibly important um, going forward. Um, you know, a prosecutor's office to sort of enforce these treaties were sort of started. They won land titles. And that period of the mid to late 90s was a sort of glory, glor you know, it was like the sort of glory period where there was success after success after success. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but at the same time, you know, people don't give up. Nobody gives up power, as we know, you know. And so we had, you know, those in government and governments, you know, um, you know, Honduras is mostly controlled by um, a small number of very powerful families who, are, you know, control the, the who have all sort of in the total economic, media, political control. And these, you know, the governments were in the at the same time preparing to really roll out neoliberalism, sort of neoliberal policies, you know, being pushed by the Washington consensus, by the, I, I, um, the, 
the IMF, the World Bank, you know, sort of the division of sort of community land titles and the selling off of land titles and stuff. Um, at the same time where indigenous communities were and, and people like Bertha were becoming much stronger and evolving and learning about defending their rights and demanding their rights through 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 the law, through through mobilizations, through international campaigns. Um, and really the environment was becoming incre- um, increasingly important, you know, that indigenous people talked about, they never talked about environmentalism, but they took, you know, they, this was about battles for the land and for natural resources, you know. Um, and so all of this stuff sort of was, you know, coming together and clashing on so many different levels, you know. And um, and then in 2009, as things are sort of moving along and they're sort of two steps forward, one step back, you know, there's the coup in Honduras, you know, a, a, a coup that was um, orchestrated by those that wanted the status quo, not just to remain in place, but it to be strengthened, you know, so a network of sort of the network of political, economic, religious and military elites um, ousted the democratically elected president who just had six months left in power um, and really just unleashed what was, you know, what has been an utter nightmare in Honduras since and created the conditions in which, you know, Bertha Cáceres was killed, in which um, the country became the most dangerous country in the world outside an official war zone. It's become the most dangerous country in the world to practice law, to defend the land and the environment. Um, And really, when you look now, and I try to do this in my book, um, when we talk about the status quo and sort of enhancing and strengthening the status quo, what we can say without doubt, because we can see that it happened immediately, literally as a coup was sort of unfolding, that there was a giant sell-off of natural resources. The countries, the country was put up for sale to the highest bidder. And so that, you know, um, a huge escalation of environmentally destructive mega projects, mining, logging, um, renewable energy projects, cash crops, um, tourism projects, you know, all which um, were, were sanctioned and licensed without any consultation, um, mostly in rural and indigenous areas. So without legal, without consultations that were legally required and imposed. And those communities that dared organize and try and resist like the Rio Blanco community, the Lenka community, which, um, which you know, was sort of, um, which Bertha was heavily involved in and sort of spearheaded, were met with every, um, every tool, every sort of repressive and legal tool that the state had. So the, every judicial tool, you know, judges, prosecutors, office, prosecutors, politicians, tax breaks, um, the army, police, all of these sort of state tools were deployed to enable the imposition of these private entities, these projects, often which were often internationally financed, um, um, you know, by by force, you know, and that has and that led to threats and violence and. Um, smear campaigns and sexual harassment and criminalization um, 
of communities across the country, but you know, specifically in this case um, of Bertha, Bertha Cáceres, other leaders from her organization and the Rio Blanco community, where they were battling to stop the construction of a dam um, sanctioned for a river called the Rio Gualcarque, which is sacred to the Lenca people. Um, and yeah, that's that 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 dam, that river, Bertha understood to be an emblematic battle in what was a huge war, you know, a war that was sort of being fought in every part of the continent. And it was the war, you know, it was sort of the the extractive industry, extractive exploitation of, of um, you know, being rolled out really as sort of an arm of sort of neoliberal sort of, you know, economics, you know, take and exploit um, for maximum profit to benefit a few. You know, that's a very simplistic way of putting it. Um, and just, you know, just lastly to say that she, uh, people like her and Miriam Miranda and many of the other defenders um, that I've worked with and met over the years, you know, fundamentally what they say is that it doesn't have to be this way. You know, that, they're, they're, you know, Honduras is a country that has so much natural wealth. It doesn't, you know, the model that has been imposed for so long and at such a high speed, especially since the coup, is about exploitation um, to benefit a tiny proportion of people, including in the international sort of money makers, I guess, and the power brokers, local power brokers, at, you know, not just sort of not thinking about the the majority, but at the expense of the majority. So what we've seen since that, you know, rollout of these projects is significant increases in poverty. The inequality has got deeper. You know, hundreds of thousands of Hondurans have fled that country, fled um, to escape, you know, this toxic mix of poverty, corruption, impunity, violence, environmental destruction and increasingly the impact of climate change you know um as well all of these uh, and thousands of people have been killed um or, and displaced um and it's in those conditions that you have to understand the murder of Bertha Casares you know she didn't die in a vacuum she died and she she was murdered in these conditions created by a sort of economic political model in which you know the sort of financial interests of a small proportion of national and international sort of actors is considered, um, is regarded as the only important thing and everybody else is considered collateral damage. Yeah, you definitely, in so many ways, make it, I mean, through the drying up of rivers, once they're dammed, to the the displacement of people on land by both local power brokers and then also international ones. I mean, it's it honestly, it's a book that you can't read sitting down. You pace, you pace walking. You know, you pace um, reading it for sure. Um, to find to ask you a final question to kind of get a little bit into both kind of a little bit with the trial, but then also what you said a little bit about, you know, it didn't need to be this way, you know, um, that, you know, the, yeah. what, um, you know, both birth and, um, um, Miriam had said, 
but then and then also um, connected to a statement, a powerful statement that you had said, um, and you wrote about that there was neither there was neither racism nor misogyny in the in the trial. Like that wasn't part of the the legal the the legal process, right? And if and if it it seems that one of the major legacies that Bertha has left behind is as you state and make so clearly is the rehabilitation of the the Lenka people, Lenka culture and Lenka spaces. How but then at the same time you you you've also investigated cases where I for, I the I think it was the the law of seven hundred and seventy nine um there was a progressive law against violence against women that you, that was torn apart by um, a host of uh, popular and you know international forces. I mean, you have experience in you know legal legal um, precedents that are, are that are built and then dis- that are dismantled. I and mean, what do you think? What do you think those legal procedures needed to better address racism and uh, misogyny um, in the in the trials? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just first to say that, you know, while now, rightly so, we, you know, we talk, um, you know, it's becoming part of our everyday vocabulary to talk about, not talk about race, being racist or not racist, but to talk about being anti-racism, anti-racism, sorry. And, you know, but that for years and years would identified in this way she was anti-racism, anti-capitalism, anti-patriarchy, you know, um, it wasn't about just, you know, she understood that it was, a being passive in this isn't enough, you know, it's about an active sort of, um, um, it's an active process, right, and it's about action, you know, you don't, we don't get rid of racism or misogyny, by without action, right? Because nobody's going to give us those things. Because again, it comes down to the status quo, and it comes down to hierarchies of power. Um, laws are important, absolutely, right? I mean, you know, um, but the fact is that, and you know, I would say this where it comes, where it comes to Bertha's case, where it comes to, um, so you know, violence against women in general, you know, or or corruption or whatever sort of, you know. Um, issue or um area you want to look at um why do why does it continue you know and if you want to really simplify it right um you've got to think about impunity right if um impunity kills impunity breeds violence impunity generates corruption you know if there are no consequences people keep doing it right and so the law is important but the law in itself isn't enough, right? If you have a great um, violence and um, anti-violence against women legislation, like Mexico does, for example, it has one of the best written laws, I think, that there, there exists. And yet, you know, the number of women being killed every day, when I moved to Mexico seven or eight years ago, I think the number was was seven or eight women a day, and now it's 11, right? Um, so what, what what's so the law isn't enough, okay? So you have individuals and institutions, right, so that, which are structurally misogynist, which are structurally racist. Um, and that by that, I mean um, prosecutor's offices. But that, by that, I mean, you know, 
police forces and units. By that, I mean courts and judges. And it's about individuals and it's about institutions. Okay, and so, you know, in the case of Berta, you could see, you know, and I say this in my book that for the people, you know, for, for the dam company and the, 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 you know, the investors and, um, and the powerful people behind this, prod, behind that project, the idea, you know, the idea that a woman and not just a woman, an indigenous woman, right, was interrupting their plan was sort of was you know um disrupting their project their profits was just intolerable i mean you know it's just complete and that she, that she had to be made an example of um and you see from the phone evidence uncovered during the investigation you know there were sort of senior people in the dam company um who would be, you know, using racist terminology to describe the Lenka, you know, communities, you know, pinche indios, um, fucking indigenous Indians, you know, um, um, and just this, and, you know, Baza herself was sexually harassed, you know, by people associated with, or in the dam company. To think about her murder as, as something that occurred in isolation and not to think about it in the context of this racism um, and misogyny was a you know part of the deliberate attempt by the authorities to never get to the full truth right and that's that worked on many different levels you know there was a decision taken for example not to touch or not to investigate or go down the line of political political responsibility the armed forces of the institution was clearly an untouchable institution. And, misog- and, and you know, uh, misogyny and racism were things they just were not interested in thinking about. Now, is that, a str- is that because those individual prosecutors just don't, didn't see it as relevant or it's because it's not sort of, it wouldn't have helped them get a conviction or not get a conviction or is it something wider, more structural than that? Um, probably both, right? Um, but... Really, you know, it, I think it was part of a sort of a, a strategy um, to not to to make sure that we never or we we ha- we didn't fully understand um, and you know or fully expose um, the, the 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 sort of factors and elements and actors that were involved. In, you know, not just her murder, because Bertha's murder was like the grand finale of what was a terror campaign, you know, role, you know, a terror campaign that had all the hallmarks of a counterinsurgency terror campaign, you know, um, for years. And when, you know, in which they tried to sort of neutralize her by sending her to jail, by threats, by harassment, by all bribes. And when none of that worked, they killed her. But, you know, so all of those different elements and actors involved in that campaign that in, were involved in the, you know, in in the run up to her murder, into her murder, and then the attempted cover up of her murder. There was a strategy, you know, um, to not um, to not expose all of those. The way you tie that up, I think that's that's just the natural way to conclude this conversation, Nina. Great. Um, is there unless there's anything else you would like to add for the listener who I'm hoping is finding a way to order your new book, Who Killed Bertha Caceres, um, so they can better understand a little bit more of the history that you've unfolded for us here today. 
No, that was great. Thank you very much. Um, I think I probably jumped around a bit too much, but you know, <laughs> my, my brain took me in one direction and in another. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think Honduras, you know, Honduras is an incredibly complex country. It's a complex society. I think you know we as journalists, as scholars, as you know researchers, as commentators, you know, are get tricked or get sort of forced or pushed into thinking about Central America, you know, as a region that you can group together or the Northern Triangle. Every country is so different, you know, and I wouldn't even claim to understand Honduras well. You know, I've tried my best to uncover some layers of it, you know, but it's an incredibly complex country. It's an incredibly difficult country to be in physically. Um to, to you know because of because of the misogyny because of the security issues because of um, the you know autocratic regime that has sort of been in power for eleven years now and sort of is propped up by the US and other sort of international um, governments um, it's dangerous it's it's you know freedom of the press is a huge issue and so you know I've tried to do that um, as best as I can there's a lot more to um, you know to tell in Honduras and um, many more layers of complex complexity that I, I'm sure I never got into, but yeah, I gave it a go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for leaving us with that, you know, really hitting on what the pillars of violence takes place. Uh, the series of Noria, Mexico and Central America is really trying to aim at, which is to be humble and speak with localities first, because it's hard to know any of these localities well, much less all of them. And we can't start with generalization, generalizing places. Um, and you read your pages and you're just struck with how brave you are um, to have um, ventured in some of these places and to ask some of these questions and to get a few more of the answers that we all want. So thank you again for your time. And everyone listening, stay tuned for our next conversation in the Violence Takes Place series. Thank you.